live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back from Italy, Rabbi Hirsch. How was the trip? It was fantastic. We had almost 30 people touring Italy. Lovely. In fact, I wanted to mention that post this trip, we're running another trip to Italy from Monday 12th June to Thursday 15th June, covering Bologna, Ferrara, Padua and Venice, a trip in the sunshine to some extraordinary Jewish sites. And as ever, for more detail, podcasts at jle.org.uk. That's usually me saying that email address. Yes. The last trip wasn't really open for the listeners, but this you're opening up to everyone and you'd be silly not to join. Correct. Yes. And this is by yourself or is this with Rabbi Tetz as well? Both of us and therefore the Ramchal, for instance, will feature as will other individuals of note. Okay, so this is your chance to join Rabbi Hirsch on a live podcast trip together with Rabbi Tetz. Please do email with your interest and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. So we've had a slightly extended break. We're still in the middle of our 17th century traitors and we are on the concluding session, which will wrap up both Spinoza and Shabtai Tzvi's effect on Jewish history. And I understand this is going to be slightly longer than usual, so everyone can listen to it while they're doing their pre-Pesach chores. In fact, they can listen to it during Pesach because we won't be doing a podcast for, I guess, almost two weeks. So this will keep you going, but you can stop halfway after Spinoza and before Shabtai Tzvi. Okay, so we mentioned that having been brought up in an Orthodox Jewish environment in Amsterdam, Spinoza was excommunicated by the community in 1656 for his heretical views. Let's look briefly at his later life and career, and then how his philosophy affected the course of Judaism. So after his harem, he stays in Amsterdam for several years. He's not really hassled by the rabbis or the mamad. He's just ostracized. So he lives his own life. He's now known as Benedict de Spinoza. He ignores his past and he's now giving private uh, philosophy lessons. And he leaves the city in 1661. And during his time in Amsterdam, Spinoza wrote his work on God and man, which he never published during his lifetime, assuming, uh, with good reason, that it would be suppressed. Although two Dutch translations of it survive, which were discovered around 1810. And in 1661, Spinoza moves to Rheinsberg, a small village near Leiden, which is the headquarters of the atheistic, non-Orthodox collegiate movement. And he begins his work on Descartes' principle of philosophy in Latin. He no longer had reason to remain in Amsterdam, even though his brother Gabriel was living there, as was his sister Rebecca. But by the terms of the harem, they were forbidden to communicate with him. And he obviously no longer has a part in the family business, which his brother seems to have run until he left the West Indies. So there's no financial incentive to stay in Amsterdam either. And actually, Spinoza would never communicate or interact with Jews 
after this date. And in 1663, he moves to Vorburg. He is an optical lens maker, and he creates telescopes, microscopes, and he corresponds with scientists, with philosophers across Europe. In 1670, he moves to The Hague, and he dies there in 1667 and is buried in the church graveyard. So when did he convert to Christianity? Actually, never. His expulsion from the Jewish community didn't lead to a conversion. It was simply that all his peers were Christian. And the truth is, it made no difference to him. He didn't believe in the afterlife anyway. In fact, talking about that, his philosophy, it's contained in two books. One is the Theological Political Treatise, and one is called The Ethics. Theological Political was published in 1670, published anonymously, but it didn't stay that way for long because it was outed and characterized as forged in hell by a renegade Jew and the devil. <laughs> it is condemned in 1673 by the Synod of the Reformed Church in Holland and formally banned in 1674. In fact, in 1678, a year after his death, the States of Holland banned all his works, which included owning, reading any of his writings. So he never corresponded with the Jews. No. He lived his life as a non-Jew, pretty much an atheist. Why do his beliefs matter to me as a Jew? What effect did he have? Okay, so let's define first, what did he believe? Spinoza is part of the rationalist school of thought. The main people in this are Descartes, Leibniz and him, which starts with the concept that I have no idea if anything is true, but I believe that God would not fool me because God is good and gave me a mind. So hence the famous saying from Descartes, je pense, donc je suis, I think, therefore I am. Spinoza continues this and therefore propounds the idea that logic will allow you to prove almost mathematically all of existence, including morals and ethics. So you mean God is irrelevant in day-to-day -day life? God has no ongoing input. God never intervenes in the world. There is no such thing as a personal relationship with God. And therefore, for instance, good and evil do not really exist. These moral categories are labels that we basically attach to things if they measure up or don't measure up to what they can do. Meaning a good person is no different than a good hammer. It does what it's supposed to. We become objects, not subjects almost. But it's critical to realize that this is simply pure theory, his theory. It's a theory which can explain life, but it's not based on any text or any proofs. So like with any theory, there are loads of questions. How do you know God exists? Conversely, if he does exist, how do we know that God has no ongoing input? How do we know that logic can prove anything or everything? I mean, particularly as Jews, we believe that the outcome of the sin in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, introduced confusion into the world. It's Eitz Hadas Tov Vera, and therefore there is no such thing as absolute objectivity. And secondly, whereas Spinoza feels that reason and logic is everything, we say that the soul understands things on a deeper level. It connects to God and the wisdom of Torah, which is infinite. So he doesn't believe in the ongoing input of God, but yep. you're saying he does believe in God. 
He's not an atheist, if that's what you mean. His definition of God is radically redefined because according to him, God is the sum total of the natural and physical laws of the universe. God is nature and definitely not an individual entity or creator. Okay, so you've explained his views, and obviously we don't agree with anything, but then again, what's the relevance to us? There's plenty of philosophers out there and religions that we don't agree with. Okay, so the part that we very much care about, he is the father of what is called biblical criticism, mm. the first comprehensive Western attack on the divine authorship of Torah. In other words, Torah is not written by Moses, even if he ever existed, but by a series of people over the centuries who simply invented it. As he put it, if one observes that all the contents of these five books, the histories and precepts, are set forth with no regard to chronology, and that frequently the same story is repeated with variations, it will readily be recognized that all of these materials were collected indiscriminately, just happened to be. Of course, he has no recognition of the oral law explaining the written law because he wasn't knowledgeable in Talmud. So creating a theory almost from ignorance, however undoubtedly intelligent he was. You know, he says that Rabbi Ibn Ezra, a 12th century scholar, discovered that Moses did not write all of Chumash. But it's completely out of context because the Ibn Ezra did believe that Moshe wrote the Torah. He simply questions whether the last few psukim of the very end of Vezesa that contained the death of Moshe were written by him. As does the Gemara and Baba Basra. Exactly. As length, yes. we discussed this with Rabbi Tetz in the Vilna Gaon episode, right. if you remember. Right. And given that the Evan Ezra remained 100% committed to religion in his life and in his writings, you can't quote him selectively to prove your thesis. But Spinoza didn't have the exposure to that depth of Judaism, like many others who've written theories about Sinai. Spinoza also says that prophecy and miracles don't exist, never did. How do you know that? So in his words, a miracle would be an insult to the divine because it implies that God created nature so weak and has ordained for her laws so barren that he must repeatedly tinker with his flawed creation through miracles. But, you know, he's ignoring narrative, history, purpose, context. What his writings do add up to is that there's no Torah mitzvahs, no personal God, no concept of prayer, no world to come, nothing that is sacred or that is fundamental to orthodoxy remains, nothing at all. And one of his targets is the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed, the Murdavuchim, who was also a philosopher, but the Rambam insists that reason alone can't demonstrate absolutely that the world is eternal. The foundation is the written law and faith. Which means all in all, Spinoza opens the door to the potential total destruction of faith, and in a way of Judaism, and exerts an enormous influence on later generations of freethinkers. I mean, we will deal with this at greater length before Shavuos, when we discuss evidence of Messiah, of Sinai, and why he is fundamentally wrong. But the theory is very attractive, and the damage is horrific. Mendelssohn, the father of the reform movement, is a classic outcome. Now, Mendelssohn doesn't follow his route of pantheism, but he does accept that there is no dogma, no faith-based Judaism per se, only those things which the mind and logic can reconstruct. Now, 
Conveniently for Spinoza, he's not answering questions about how his philosophy works in light of archaeology, of history. He is proposing an alternative. It's a macro form. It's an ivory tower approach. And he would have been uninterested in Judaism's response. He never wrote to them. He's simply creating a model which he believes is true because intellectually it works, but without any recourse to proof. He had to find enough to make his point, but he doesn't have to go through line by line. So he finds, you know, some cracks in the Bible and can build, despite the fact that there are a thousand verses that would declare the opposite to be true. A philosophy that doesn't have to get dirty in the practical debate of details. It's unfettered by rules and it has a luxury of not having to answer certain fundamental questions. And as we mentioned, God has no purpose post-creation. God exists somehow, but without any input. God is the sum total of all nature, yet the cause of all creation in ways that he never explains. So we are here, what is our purpose? To experience joy, gain knowledge, and admire the beauty and wisdom of nature, and then we die. So why did he have to believe in God for this? Was that just to answer the origin of matter and the way things started? Basically, yes. Right. Yeah. And in fact, for the next 300 years, they are going to debate, what did he mean? There is a God, but there's no free will and no outcome to life. It's very, it's very Greek. It's very hypothetical. Sounds rather pointless. Although it is, in fact, very current. It is the Western non-religious philosophy of life in a nutshell. The purpose of life is happiness, knowledge, and beauty, and then you die. Right. So a alternative to a life full of commandments. Yep. And in a way, we can define these philosophers as playing a guessing game, a guessing game played by very clever people, creating a construct which looks solid, ideally by tearing down others. But essentially, it's just the product of the human mind in the pursuit of the unknowable. You know, in the temple, in the Beis Hamikdash, we have two vessels, two kalim, which relate to the Torah. The Oren, the Ark, and the Menorah. The Ark is the written law, the Menorah is the oral law. And hence, the written law is in the inner sanctuary, because you cannot negate or override or do away with the written law. Whereas philosophy has no anchor, it's got no frame of reference. I'll give you one idea, one, so to speak, insight into how vague all of this is, how theoretical this man-made philosophy is. Spinoza claims that there is only one infinite substance, that pantheism. It's what we are all part of, and it's self-caused comes along Gottfried Leibniz at exactly the same time in the 17th century, a German philosopher who starts from exactly the same principle, namely that I start my life by knowing nothing except that logic can prove everything. And Leibniz concludes the exact opposite to Spinoza, that the universe is composed of infinite individual substances and that God caused the existence of all of these and he has a personal relationship with us. It's a game. It's built on elegant arguments formed by intellectuals. And in fact, in 2015, we mentioned this last time, the Amsterdam Jewish community organized a symposium to discuss lifting the ban, inviting scholars from around the world. However, the conclusion was that Spinoza's views had not become less problematic over time. And Chacham Pinchas Toledana responded that he's still tearing apart the fundamentals of our religion. I will add one caveat. I'm not 
totally anti-philosophy as such. You know, social philosophy, how people behave in, in given situations, or, or moral, perhaps political philosophy, how society should react or intervene. That's a far more legitimate intellectual pursuit. Just because it has relevance. Yes. And also because it has a practical outcome based on observable phenomena or rules or data. You know, this stuff is simply hevel havolim omashlema. Of course, according to Spinoza, Kehelis wasn't written by Shlomo Melech, but about 500 years later by an exile in Babylonia. By whom, you may ask? Sorry, he was anonymous. Spinoza doesn't deal with details, just theories, and we pay the price. <laughs> so basically, he opens the door to alternative lifestyles, but part of the reason he's able to, going back to what we said at the end of last time, is the disappointment that came from Shabtai Tzvi. Together, they have a very unfortunate outcome, even though their ideas, the ones that they taught during their life, were poles apart. And Spinoza did know about Shabtai Tzvi. It would have been impossible to avoid that in Europe. In fact, there's a letter written to Spinoza which says, here there is a room on everyone's lips that the Israelites who've been scattered for more than 2,000 years will return to their native land. Although there's no reply from Spinoza to this. But the mania overwhelming Europe's Jewish population meant that he knew of Shabtai Tzvi. He would have denied it as lies and false claims. No, it's just being ridiculous. He, yeah. he wouldn't have gone as far as that. Okay, so we understand. Right. So you've explained why Spinoza had a major contribution to defection from Judaism. How does this tie into Shabtai Tzvi? As you said, they had very different approaches and very different... Uh... Okay. So a lot of it ties in because of the timing. Let's go back a little bit to the outcome of Shabtai Tzvi. We said that his conversion to Islam in 1666 had shaken the foundations of what he was teaching, and then his death 10 years later really should have ended all speculation that he was Mashiach. And indeed, a majority of Jews, they expressed disappointment with what they had signed up to, and they tried to pick up the pieces of their lives in various ways, which wasn't so easy, and not all within orthodoxy, as we will come to. But a minority of Jews say, we believed in him. We are smart. He was smart. It therefore must be that we simply currently can't comprehend the divine plan. And our faith in him and in Judaism means that if he converted, we need to convert. This uh, retroactively justifies our actions, and many, particularly in Salonika, would become known as the Donmer, which literally means turncoats, or as applied to them, converts. It's quite tragic. They're just trying to rationalize what they did and the crazy steps they took and to make themselves feel better about themselves, really. And they create a whole set of beliefs. But for some, they fully believe this so that going forward, they would be publicly Muslim, like he was, and internally Jewish, with plenty of Jewish practices. It's very unlike the Muranos. And since over the 10 years between his conversion and death, he created more or less his own theology, so did they post-1676. They developed the idea of a second coming. He hasn't died yet. He simply disappeared. Right, but he's gone. So who's in charge? Nathan of Gaza's in charge now? Not really. In other words, there are people who are the writers, the publicists for this movement, which include Nathan of Gaza for the next four years until he dies and Miguel Cardoza. But they are travelers. 
they are on the move. The believers need sort of someone to talk to, you know, someone that they can approach on an ongoing basis. And they will divide roughly into three main groups. One of them is led by Osman Baba. This is now his Muslim name, who declares himself a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, and he is the most radical. The Yakubi claim loyalty to Yaakov Karido, also a claimant to be Shabtai Tzvi's reincarnated soul. And then you have a third group, less radical. They identify themselves, they're called the Old Ones, and they're followers of Shabtai Tzvi. But all Sabbateans share a few fundamental beliefs. Remember, this is after he is dead. Firstly, that his apostasy began the work to break down, to break apart the klipois, the negative shells of exile, and to raise the Shechina in order to create a new Torah, the Torah of Atzilus. But for this to happen, the current Torah, the Torah of Bria, has to be violated, which means that both the moderate and radical followers will create ceremonies to violate halacha. Some of them will be as simple as eating a piece of fruit on Tisha B'av, the day of the, of the morning of the destruction of both temples. But you have to violate halacha in some way because you have to usher in a new Torah. And all of them, all the groups, needed to shield their true identity to outsiders. Falsehood, hypocrisy even, were sacred duties. And in fact, the entire idea of living life in secrecy, because you couldn't reveal to the Muslim world that your conversion was a sham, meant that a believer required silence. But the reward of this secrecy, of this silence, is the inner element of Judaism, that the seed, and this would continue for centuries, all the way until 1923, at the time of the reform of Turkey, at which time there were potentially 15 to 20,000 donme. Nowadays, there are still some, but uh, they're fading. Their the numbers are tiny. Where are they nowadays? In Turkey, there are some. Well. But it also meant back then that even amongst Jews who remained as Jews, they would be believers in Shabtai Tzvi. They would sit next to you in Shul. And they would have uh, small secretive communities. In fact, there was even a yeshiva in Izmir called Ketatera. All of its adherents were subsequently found out to be Sabbateans. So it continues to exist even amongst Orthodox Jews, but underground. I mean, these weren't by now knowledgeable Jews. You said they were Orthodox. Why did it continue? They saw the awakening that had taken place as being beyond Teva, beyond the natural, and carried out by scholars, by Talmidei Chachamim, which meant there must have been heavenly input. Now, the radicals amongst them believed in Shabtai Tzvi no longer as a human messiah, but as a divinity. And so, for instance, all the 36 categories of Kores in the Mishnah, including sexual prohibitions, become positive commandments. You have to violate the prohibitions to establish this age of Atzilus. And they will find biblical support in obscure passages. The, the, the whole idea of the paraduma, the red heifer, that the person who's unclean becomes clean and the clean person becomes unclean. So that means that purity and impurity are two sides of the same coin. 
you know, and, and Kabbalah is teaching the concept of tikkun, changes which will repair the world. Some changes are fundamental. That's how they see it. Well, you did mention earlier someone called Cardozo. Cardozo. Miguel Cardozo, yes. That he was a major influence. I don't think you mentioned his name last week. No, in fact, it's true. Most people will not have heard of him, even if they've heard of Nathan of Gaza. He is a very strange person. Born in Spain in 1627 into a Murano family, he manages to leave Spain at the age of 21 with his older brother, Isaac. They are both physicians. They settle in Italy, in Venice, and they come back to Judaism. His older brother settles in a small town in northern Italy and remains a you know modest uh, religious Jew all his life. Miguel Cardoso becomes one of the most important figures in the Sabbatean movement. He studies Kabbalah, potentially in Egypt, and by 1663, he is the physician to the Pasha of Tripoli. And after Shabtai Tzvi's conversion in 1666, he will devote his efforts to explaining how radical ideas are actually mainstream Judaism. He will put himself forward as Moshiach ben Yosef ben Ephraim, and that um, I mean, he will author a dozen works on Kabbalah. Soid Chai Almim, Drush Aksav, Soides Nikia, Rosa de Rosin. It's frightening just how plausible in writing he makes it sound, especially to the less learned in these areas, of his teachings. And people like him justify and persuade they they start groups across europe to get people to learn and, and ingest these ideas and even more frightening is actually how far he went what were the ideas about in kabbalistic terms he teaches that the true god is not in safe but a level beneath that that you have to convert to islam to create this terror which, of course, justifies all earlier Murano conversions. It's worrying, I guess is the best way to put it. In 1673, following a local revolution, Cardozo fled to Tunis, but the local Jewish community sort of expelled him. This is, remember, seven years after Shabtai Tzvi's conversion to Islam. He moves to Livorno, Izmir, he gets expelled from there. He's in Constantinople, he's in Gallipoli. And in 1706, he is stabbed to death by his nephew, which officially he predicted, because if he is Moshiach ben Yosef, then he's supposed to be killed before Moshiach's revelation can finally happen. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. So, okay, so these are very dramatic events and yes. very dramatic figures. How long did these after effects continue for? I mean, I know you said that there's people still today who believe in it, but that, right. they, these are a very minor group. Okay, so the most obvious and famous is the persecution of the Ramchal, which is in the next century, in the 18th century. And we have two podcasts on that, but they become more relevant once you've heard this. And it happened because the rabbis didn't want to make the same mistake again. You have here in the Ramchal an unmarried, genius individual teaching new Kabbalah, they were too scared that this was history repeating itself. And in fact, you find that the Taz in the laws of Talmud Torah says that under 40, we may not learn Kabbalah because Kabbalah, basically, it's, it's too fluid in, in the wrong hands. It can be made almost to mean anything. 
And it also puts into context why the Neu de Behuda, also in the 18th century, is so opposed to people learning Kabbalah, especially those who are not fully learned in Talmud and Halacha, as he writes, and why he is so opposed to saying the L'shem Yichud before carrying out a mitzvah, especially the counting of the Omer, which is just about to happen, which many say. He said, you know, which God are you praying to? L'shem Yichud means the unification of what? Of Kutcher Bricho and the Shechina. So what, they're, they're two elements to God? What are you doing? What are you saying? Does anyone have any idea? None at all. So he's very strongly against it, especially post Shabtai Tzvi. So, you know, you want to know how long it continued. So in many ways until today, because it turned the world upside down, the fever burnt for centuries. You know, it left the Jews with a very deep trauma. You're talking about a person who was hailed as Moshiach, legitimately affirmed by rabbis who converts his apostasy caused more turmoil than any pogroms, than the persecutions, because external trauma reinforced group identity almost and cohesion. But now what had been absolute in Jewish life becomes open to scrutiny. The reality of Mashiach's arrival is damaged. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. That's how deep the wound is. Which means you put together Spinoza's attack and Shabtai Tzvi's defection, belief was very tested during those years. And there is a fallout on a practical level. Take Amsterdam, for example. The members of the community, led by Rabbi Avohav, who is, as you might remember, more Kabbalistically inclined, and Rabbi Mortera has since died, they threw all caution to the winds as they anticipated the return of the exiles to Yerushalayim. Rabbi Liss sent me a copy of a declaration which all the rabbis signed hailing Shabtai Tzvi. And the Amsterdam Jews named their children Shabtai and Noson, added new prayers to their liturgy. And now what? Now what do you do? What an embarrassment for the communities. How, as a leader or a rabbi, do you face your congregants? So in many cases, they hide all the evidence. Some communities tore out all the pages of their communal records of 1665 and 1666. Go to Amsterdam, and that's how you will see it today. The records are missing, expunged. In some cases, they simply rewrote them. But, you know, do you change your children's names? Are they called Shabtai for the rest of their life? You know, the ongoing effects are very broad. And, you know, one of the, the Talmidei Chachomim who went on to occupy mainstream rabbinic positions, like uh, Shmuel Primo, who was Shabtai Tzvi's private secretary, and then became the rabbi in Adrianople after he reverted to orthodoxy. But think of the humiliation he has to go through. And in fact, some claim that he didn't revert totally. This is the first sustained assault from inside Judaism on rabbinic authority. Who says they should determine Jewish life? And for some, it will plant the idea for an even broader attack on rabbinic authority. He serves as a catalyst negatively, meaning people said, you know, we listened to the rules and look what happened. So in Western Europe, there are those people who eventually coalesce into a movement who say, clearly, if you're a believer, if you're a mum, it's not good enough. You need to find answers. You need to find your philosophy and your information, not just from within the Torah world, but from the outside world. And it creates the seeds of reform 
and ties into Spinoza, obviously. Whereas in Eastern Europe, there were those that said, you know, exile is going to be long and bitter. We need to turn inwardly. We need to find Simcha inwardly. And that creates the seeds of Hasidus. So the major outcomes to, to these things. There is halachic fallout. Rabbi Yaakov's supporters, who we mentioned as an opponent of Shabtai Tzvi, he is written to by the Shiva Kohl in Amsterdam, who said that we initiated saying Burkas Kayanim every day because we want to grab as many mitzvahs as possible. And now, now what should we do? It's a biblical mitzvah. So he answered that you did it based on the false premise, so you don't have to carry it out. But this is what's going on in the Jewish world. And by the way, potentially this ties into why the Vilna Gaon wasn't able to bring back this mitzvah of Burkas Kayanim to the Ashkenazi world. It's all, you know, you've got to put things into context. But the mainstays of halacha, of belief, of kehila, they're very rocky. It was an unbelievably messed up world. And Judaism starts unraveling during the 1700s and, and 1800s. Well, I mean, we've been receiving a lot of feedback about the Shabtai Tzvi, particularly people saying that they had no idea about the devastating effects. Yeah. And that's before they've listened to this episode. Yeah. You, you've tied in Hasidus, <laughs> reform everything into it. Yeah, it's called the launch of modern Jewish history, but it's a negative launch. Right. So regarding beliefs in Sfarim, we have a question from one of our listeners. How does the Sefer Chemdas Hayomim tie into this? Ah, Who right. wrote it? Okay, so Chemdas Hayomim. <laughs> One of the ongoing debates, a mystery in an era that contained enough mysteries already. Even with all the research that has been carried out, there doesn't seem to be a clear answer as to who authored this Sefer. What we do know is it's printed for the first time in 1731 in Izmir. It's a combination of Halacha and Kabbalah about the festivals of the year in Shabbos. It's probably the first such work since the times of the Ari in the 1500s, and there is a thirst for this type of work. It's very accessible, easily read, and hence, you know, it has a strong influence on many ordinary people and is reprinted often, but it's printed without an author's name. The person who brought it to print, Rabbi Israel Yaakov Al-Ghazi, is a rabbi in Izmir, and he told the following story, that he was in Tzfas, and an old man met him with a manuscript and told him that he has to print this. So he dutifully did so. But a few years after it's printed, Rav Yaakov Emden, who is an extreme opponent of Sabbateanism, said that rather than being written by a pupil of the Ari, it was a pupil of Shabtai Tzvi, or possibly the work of Nathan of Gaza. And one of the reasons Rav Yaakov Emden was convinced of it was because there's nothing about the three weeks, about that period of the three weeks in there, which Sabbateans had said, you don't need to observe anymore. And the Baal Shem Tov in Toldus says that this book is possible, it's invalid. Meanwhile, in the Ottoman Empire, they are deciding halacha based on it. So this is the division of its history in the 1700s. In the 1800s, the Hassam Sofa owned it, but it's unclear whether he ever used it. He never quotes it. Uh, Reb Chaim of Volozhin said about one particular piece in there that it could only have been written by somebody authentic, which seems to give it a hersha, that we know the particular piece he is referring to. But nowadays, we understand from research that this book was actually put together. It's an anthology. 
it's not an original work. And therefore, he could have found an original piece in there, which he felt, you know, gave um, um, reason and authority to the author. But there were, in a way, multiple authors. Um, some pieces are kosher and some seem to be Sabbatean. Even in the academic world, they were split on the matter. Tishbi, who's a pupil of Gershon Sholem, said it was written by Nathan of Gaza. Gershon Sholem disagreed. But with all this, it's lucky that we are carrying out this podcast not a few years ago, because recent research carried out by Rabbi Chiel Goldhaber points to the fact that actually the author was Rabbi Al-Ghazi himself. And he says in every volume, Rabbi Al-Ghazi puts his own introduction and footnotes. But in one of these footnotes, he slips up and writes, rather than say, the author of this book wrote, he says, and I wrote. <laughs> and also in his Droshus on Yontuf, which are printed separately, they have exactly the same lines of thought and wording in certain cases. And therefore, many of the personal experiences reported by the author were taken from other works and adapted. And it's sort of a puzzle made up of a thousand pieces. What's very interesting is that there are certain customs that we carry out today where the first source is in this Chemdas Hayomim. Saying Lodovid Hashem Uri Vishi in Elul is found for the first time in here. It's not from the Ari, which, by the way, is why some people don't say it. So all in all, many rabbis accepted the book while distancing themselves from the parts that were definitely identified with Sabbateanism, in other words, poems, piyutim, which have an acrostic with the name of Nathan of Gaza, some rejected it and some accepted it completely. So back to the podcast. It was very, very detailed. And thank you very much for all the research you put into it. Would it be fair to sum up and say that Spinoza, I guess, opens the door to biblical criticism for the first time in history? And Shabtai Tzvi opened the door to Kabbalah overtaking halachic life. It's true. I think, though, to be true to it, we need to expand it a little bit. Spinoza opens the door in many ways to the destruction of faith. He provides the ability to live life as a secular Jew without any guilt. And even those who don't completely defect can drop mainstays of Judaism easily to this day. And Shabtai Tzvi, yes. It allows Kabbalah to have a far greater input into Judaism than perhaps the Shulchan Aruch and others would normally have warranted. But the additional element, the other side of the coin, is the fallout, the disillusionment with Judaism, I guess with the rabbinic leadership, which ultimately gives a basis to the reform movement. His challenges affect us today. So that's the be-all and end-all, unfortunately. Okay, so I'll stick to my summary before. Okay. <laughs> so who is to blame? Well... A combination of both, I guess. In both cases, the answer really is nobody. You can't point to one person or one event. I mean, you can talk about the two main people that we've described, but the circumstances in a way led to it. All in all, it's a tragic period in history with no winners. Right. Now, we promise feedback at the end of every series. I did read out the email before about the Chem Sayomim. One of our listeners contacted us about an article on the internet from the National Library in Israel about the Lithuanian State Historical Archives in Vilnius, in Vilna. Right, so Can you expand yes, on that? you showed this to me before we started recording. It's about a census. Family names were still not compulsory in Poland at the time, so it's not easy to trace individual families in the records. But this page is from 1765. 
There are a few pages of the census dedicated to one of the main streets in Old Vilnius, German Street, which was very populated by Jews. And on the right-hand side of the street, you find an Elias or Eliash Zelmanovitz, his wife Hanna, his son Zelman, and his daughter Basia. This is the Vilnagorn. Rabilio ben Zalman, Zalmanovich, he was 45 years old at the time. Of his eight known children, only two are mentioned here because some passed away as infants and others were not born yet. And two of the older girls may have been married at the time. So we see on a piece of paper in a non-Jewish archive um, the registration of the Vilna Gone. He did exist. <laughs> I also wanted to mention that a friend, Alan, phoned me and mentioned that the concept of Ein Oid Milvado, which was being fought over, so to speak, by the Vilna Gone and the Balatanya, actually, if you go back earlier in time to the period of the Rishonim, it simply means that God is the only God as opposed to there being two, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And next podcast will be the most unusual rabbi of the 17th century. More unusual than Shabtai Tzvi. Yes, one that remains on the straight and narrow. Okay, thank you. We're looking forward to that. That was a very long episode, but fascinating and a good extra for the people seeing that we have this break and all the chores that they have. They can listen to it on the go. A reminder of the Italy trip you mentioned, which is from the 12th to the 15th of June, covering... Um, some fascinating places with yourself and Rabbi Tetz. Please email podcast at jle.org.uk for more information. And of course, please carry on sending us all your feedback, your questions. We will hopefully address them after the break. Please carry on following and subscribe to any platform that you're listening on. Actually, Spotify have this brand new feature where you can post feedback for everyone to see. So that would be helpful as well for other listeners to see it. But questions... Probably the best platform would be podcast.jd.org.uk. Hope you enjoy your break and we'll see you afterwards. Thank you. Mm-hmm.